The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by the wonderful L and Derek. We're going to go ahead and jump right into scripture because we are going to have a rich discussion today. Genesis 15. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you possibly give me, since I still have no children? The head of my household is Eleazar, a man from Damascus. He continued, Since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. The Lord's word came immediately to him. This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. Then he brought Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you think you can count them. He continued, This is how many children you will have. Abram trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. God said to Abram, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land as your possession. But Abram said, Lord God, how do I know that I will actually possess it? God said, Bring me a three-year-old female calf a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. He took all of these animals, split them in half, and laid the halves facing each other. But he didn't split the birds. When vultures swooped down on the carcasses, Abram waved them off. After the sun set, Abram slept deeply. A terrifying and deep darkness settled over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, where they will be oppressed slaves for four hundred years. But after I punish the nation they serve, they will leave it with great wealth. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried after a good, long life. The fourth generation will return here, since the Amorites' wrongdoing won't have reached its peak until then. After the sun had set and darkness had deepened, a smoking vessel with a fiery flame passed between the split-open animals. That day the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, To your descendants I give this land, from Egypt's river to the great Euphrates, together with the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So there's some weird things happening in this story. I feel like I start every (laughs) podcast (laughs) saying there's some weird stuff happening here. And that's because this story is told of a different culture, a culture that is very different to our own. Our culture makes promises by shaking hands, right? That a person's handshake is as good as their word, right? And here in this story, we see a very different form of handshaking happening here. What is going on in this strange handshake? 
one of the things that I really love is mimetic theory. And for those not familiar with mimetic theory, it is a theory of desire and an explanation of human behavior and culture. It comes from a social scientist by the name of Rene Girard, who is also a philosopher. And basically what it says is that mimetic desire leads to natural rivalry and eventually to scapegoating is that humankind has this desire to scapegoat others to bring about peace. When you scapegoat someone, you make them the evil thing. Then once everybody agrees that this person or this group is evil, when they attack it and they destroy it, they have peace amongst themselves. And uh, we have this sense of rivalry to overcome others to attack others so that we can come out on top as human beings. And mimetic rivalry is what that's all about. And so we have to overcome that. And so what is happening in this story is it is a story of salvation beginning with the covenant to Abraham and Sarah. And this is the second of three times that God is reaffirming that covenant. He uh, starts it in Genesis 12. He goes on and here in Genesis 15 that we see, and then in Genesis 18. And Abraham, as Micah said, is in a world we don't understand. It's a world where human sacrifice occurred on the regular. Human sacrifice was all throughout the ancient world. And so what we can do if we use mimetic theory to look at this passage, the journey of the Bible then reads as a movement from ritual blood sacrifice ultimately to self-sacrifice or sacrament, as we call it within the Christian tradition. So what this is, is Abraham doesn't have to kill a person in this passage to make a covenant with God. It's a step away from that. Unfortunately, it's going to take centuries to eventually lead human beings away from this concept of blood sacrifice. And you see this later on in what we refer to as the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. Micah, there's a book uh, named after you, right? Isn't there a book in the Bible named after you, Micah? (laughs) And in Micah 6, 8, it says, God requires doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Now, that seems in direct contrast to what we see, but as we see the revelation of God progressing, we see God trying to move humanity away from this sense of rivalry, the sense of overcoming, but God understands that humanity is very often deaf to it, and so is trying to move humanity away from these violent expressions of sacrifice, and so that is... I, where I see this beginning in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Well, and that term, that very term scapegoating that you talked about at the beginning of your explanation of mimetic rivalry comes from ancient Israelite tradition, where we have this weird verse that comes a little bit later in Leviticus. When you're trying to forgive the sins of all the people, you take two goats, you take one, and you let it run off into the desert, and it becomes the scapegoat. It becomes the the goat onto which all of your sins go, right? And so it is that same sort of thing where we cast our aspersions onto another, we cast our rivalries onto another, and we're able to come out of this. 
in the Hebrew, the idea of sealing something, right? If we put our signet stamp on something, that's a seal of approval. That's, you know, the, the sign that this is good, that this is good to go. It's like our signature in our modern context. That word in Hebrew translates more literally to cut, like you cut a deal right. rather than you seal a deal. And so here in this text, the cutting is supposed to be, you know, a little bit of an implication of if you break this cu- promise, then may this happen to you, right? It is that same sort of scapegoating thing, right? Where we are showing our unity with each other by dividing something else. And that concept of divide and conquer, it's almost like it's something that continues to happen throughout our history and is set up as a system and institution to uphold capitalism rather than allow us to work with the people that we work with. And I think that this really goes into this covenant begins God and Abram's friendship. You see a more relational connection with God and Abram in this passage than you do. Because, you know, Abraham grew up in a henotheistic culture, a culture that acknowledged the existence of other gods, but they'd have their own tribal deity. But most of those gods, you really, you, you could try and bargain with them, but you didn't really have a conversation with them. And here, Abraham's kind of like having a conversation with God. He's talking, you know, let, let's make this deal. You know, I don't have any heirs, God. You know, you told me back in Genesis 12, everything was going to be cool, but I don't have any heirs. Maybe Abram's thinking, you know what? Maybe I could go try out one of these other gods and see if they'll give me an heir. Maybe trying to twist God's arm and God's like, hey, wait a second. We're friends here. Come on, <laughs> let's work out a deal. You know, we got to work something out here. Come on, I want to work with you. I like you, Abraham. The way I read it is it's not so like we're cutting a deal when the passage begins uh, and God says, I am your protector. I looked at the Hebrew and it said shield. And the thing about shields, you have to carry them to have Mm. their protection. So it is like this mutual exchange kind of built right in. And that's how you develop friendship. You got to give a little trust. You got to give a little vulnerability. And you have to, it's not a huge leap of faith, but it's just like, all right, well, we're walking down this path together. I don't see it so much as the the handshake really, but as like an invitation to go for a walk. I like what you have to say there about S.H.I.E.L.D. because I am a really big Dungeons & Dragons player. (laughs) And uh, one of the things there, you know, uh, when you play a lot of D&D, you look at history. And at certain times in history, you had someone that was called your S.H.I.E.L.D. brother. And so when you went out to war, they stood next to you with the S.H.I.E.L.D. to protect you while you could attack or do your thing. So you didn't have to worry about carrying the shield. They were the one there to protect you. So I kind of wonder if there is an allusion to someone who walks beside you as you're journeying through life and is there to throw up the shield when things get bad for you. So I like that. I like that a lot, what you have to say. I also like, I'm not necessarily thinking in terms of just shield, shield, but like thinking of the Nimian lion mantle, where, mm-hmm. like, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, that kind of shield, but, like, I really like envisioning, like, a cool-ass mantle. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, and, and to go back to a point that Derek had made a moment ago, where a lot of the time we have this conception of the Greek gods as like they belong to this pantheon and they each had their own individual role. You know, there was the lightning god and there was the, the messenger god and there was this god and that god. And a lot of the time when we're playing D&D, we play those same sort of roles, right? Where this person only has control over these things. But in the ancient world, it was never quite that neat. Like, <laughs> you had a number of warrior gods and a number of thunder gods and a number of fire gods and those sort of things, but they were all determined by the region that you lived in and your particular area served one of them. And this is God beginning that relationship that God does not have a people group that seem to worship them yet. And so God is choosing Abram to become that people group. And we see that develop. Another wonderful point that Al made is God having trouble making friends I think so. <laughs> this is the the first person that God has come across where he's like, we can be friends. In James it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abram believed in God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. This feels like the first invitation to like the friendship with God. I love that idea because like, We've already established that Abram is a jerk. He's just a dick. Like, he screws over his wife. He sells her into sex slavery. You know, he does all of these terrible things. And yet this is the guy that God is like, yeah, we can be buddies. And I really like this point because God creates humanity. And when God first creates humanity, God realizes that they've made a mistake because they haven't made a partner for humans. A couple of theories that were thrown out on that episode was that God just thought that another animal would be able to fit that. But I really like the idea that God created humanity thinking, this is my soul people, right? These are the people that I'm meant to connect with in the deepest, most meaningful way. And then humanity comes up and God realizes, oh, there is such a difference between my capacity for knowledge and my capacity for life and humanity's capacity for life that I can't be the partner that humanity needs me to be on a really close, intimate level. I have to create other humans for that to be the case for humanity. But that also doesn't stop God's longing for mm -hmm. that relation with humans, because like God doesn't have a partner. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why this is a continual like process. Like God still wants us to like be our bud. You know, when the fall happens, there's a greater separation between us and God. And ever since then, it's just been trying to, to correct that to head towards a direction of reconciliation, which eventually happens. But it's a long process from how, like, how separate we became. And after the fall, like, it seems like God goes into this depression where, like, God isn't interacting enough to prevent the flood from being necessary. And then the flood happens, and God seems to be so torn up about it that, like, God doesn't stop Noah from cursing his grandson in this terrible way. And then, like, several generations later, that's when God seems to finally get out of their funk enough to make a friend. And, like, that is so relatable to me. Like, <laughs> when I mess something up and I realize I've made the mistake, it takes me forever to get back out there. Like, well, see, and here's where I'm coming from in this, since you brought up the fall and that early part, and I think I've said this before to you, Micah, is the word sin does not come into the Hebrew scriptures until Cain kills Abel. 
So what we have here is we have Cain and Abel both bringing sacrifices to God. Cain brings the sacrifice of grain and fruit and all of those offerings. And Abel brings a blood sacrifice, right? And mm-hmm. so one of the things fundamentalist Christianity taught me was that, well, Abel's sacrifice was better because it was a blood sacrifice. But I don't think that's what made Abel's sacrifice better because it was blood. I think it was just Abel's heart was in the right place, right? And so what Cain does is Cain looks at Abel, he gets angry at Abel, and he practices human sacrifice in that he kills his brother, and it becomes the first act in the Hebrew Scriptures of human sacrifice, which puts God in a funk, if you will. No, that's not what I meant. I never meant you to get in this victimized, sacrificial rut where you're trying to give me blood all the damn time. And humanity is saying, no, it's all about blood. It's all about killing. And Cain and Abel is a story of rivalry. Cain sees his brother Abel as his rival before God. And so he has to kill him and do away with him. And God says, Abel's blood cries out from the ground, not because it's a good sacrifice, but because human life has been destroyed. And in fact, Abel is the first human death we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. And God's like, no, this is what's wrong. And this is where we as Christians come into this. You know, we hear John the Baptist, and we say this whenever we celebrate the Eucharist, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the sin of the world is the sin of thinking God wants blood sacrifice. And so on the night Jesus is betrayed, he gives us something different. And I'm going to quote here from the Girardian lectionary. Instead of sacrificing living beings on an altar or hanging them on crosses, we eat a meal of bread and wine in remembrance of Jesus giving his body and shedding his blood for us so that it might be the last sacrifice, a self-sacrifice that turns into a sacrament. Followers of Jesus finally fulfill the covenant made to Abraham and Sarah by witnessing to a God who submits to our sacrifice rather than demanding us to sacrifice others. And I think that is the journey of scripture that we see is is a God who says, you know what? You're all about sacrifice. You're all about destruction. I'm going to submit to humankind's violence and humankind's need for blood and warfare and hatred and anger. I'm going to submit to all that and I will make myself the self-sacrifice and I no longer demand you sacrifice us to us, to the Godhead. And so that goes back to God requiring us to just do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. And I love that because God is not demanding a sacrifice here. Abram is saying, how do you prove it? Like, I hear what you're saying, prove it. 
And so God concedes to Abram by doing this symbol that Abram would understand, that Abram gets it. And instead of God going and killing something else, you see this smoking vessel with a fiery flame pass between the split open animals. Now, someone who has read Genesis before, that immediately evokes to mind the smoke and the fiery flame that lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, right? This is all evoking the future that will come here. In these verses, we have 13 through 16 is not anything that historically happened. It's not a a conversation between God and Abram. It is a conversation between the writer and the people who are reading it and saying, God already told Abram this is happening, so we don't have to worry about it. Like God knew that we were going to live as immigrants in Egypt, that we were going to be oppressed slaves for 400 years. And then God knew that we were going to get out of there and we were going to leave with all the Egyptians' wealth because God destroyed our oppressors. And God knew that specifically the fourth generation (laughs) will return. Like, that's a very specific time frame. That is someone looking back and saying, this is exactly what it was. And then it comes back to that mimetic rivalry that, Derek, you were talking about. The fourth generation will return here since the Amorites' wrongdoing won't have reached its peak until then. All of this is set up so the Amorites get punished, that this whole story is set up so that this other people group that, again, remember we're reading this book that is often justifying the existence of the state of Israel as saying, oh, the Amorites had it coming. We had to make sure that they were at their most evil before we came back and purified it. Again, purifying it by a sort of violence, a sort of human sacrifice, by the genocide of the Amorite people that is supposed to bring about the salvation of the people of Israel. I love that Girardian line that we worship a God who has sacrificed themselves so that we stop doing it. (laughs) That's just a beautiful thought. The writer of Genesis is basically saying, it's the Amorites' fault. It's these people's fault. But as Micah pointed out, God wasn't demanding a sacrifice. I love that, Micah. I had not really thought of that before. So you hit the nail on the head. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham says, prove it. And God said, okay, damn it. Abraham doesn't even really fully get it. So let me go get this sacrifice thing ready for him. Oh, no, he didn't get it ready for him. He made Abraham do the heavy lifting. The only time we really see God killing animals is to clothe humanity in the garden. And that's, again, because of humanity's disobedience. You know, God's not wanting to kill anything. God's not wanting to destroy anything. That is the big thing for me. You know, I I had brief bouts of Calvinism in my early journey. And (laughs) thank God I moved away from that because that makes it all God's fault. Whereas I see the story of, of the Hebrew Scripture saying, It's not God's fault. Humanity's the asshole. Human beings are the jerks. And here I am, as Elle said, wanting to have relationship with humanity. I'm looking for a friend. I'm looking for companionship within this divine Godhead. I'm looking for human beings to be my friend, to be my compatriot, or as Michael would say, to be my comrade. I'm looking for these comrades, and they're just jerks. I just don't see Abram being like, prove it. That's not how I read his interaction with God in this. I think he's absolutely like, you know, I've got doubts. I'm 90, I'm 85 years old. I've got doubts, God. 
you know, the protocol is Eliza is going to get it. It's a real exercise in trust on this conversation. And I think God realizes that they need to move a little closer to Abram, too, by like, doing the signs. But because Abram trusted the Lord, his faith allowed him to see the signs that would happen. And it's only through that mutual interaction there that the the covenant is made. Like it's trust going both ways, not just one way. And God was in his funk. Abram (laughs) was not like the coolest guy, but they're both like old and they've got some regrets. And God is clearly looking for some sort of like relational people or person. Like basically, God's looking for their own heir too. And Abram, like all all he wants, like he doesn't care about the material stuff anymore. He is just at the point of like life longing for life itself. That's their like bridge in their relationship and why they were able to be friends. Like actually. I love that pushback. Because I oftentimes need God to prove it a little bit. I had a a period where God had called me to seminary. God had finally made it clear that I was supposed to go into ministry. And then God immediately pulls the rug out of seminary and makes it impossible for me to go back. And I go to this other seminary and it's just awful. And it's just bespoke liberalism in religious garb. Like there's nothing profound there. There's nothing real there. It's just, you know, and there's a lot of importance to how we're feeling, but how we're feeling is not the most important determination of, of truth and how we should treat each other and all of these other things, you know, there are higher moral obligations than how we feel in a particular moment because uh, the feelings of, uh, as a white person, the feelings of a white person have often been uh, raised over the life of people of color, right? My feelings are not the most important thing in the world. I need to know something more about the world. And so, you know, I, I was just at this point where I was like, God, you led me down this path and then you screwed me over. And I I was just at a point where I didn't believe anything. And I feel like I've come back to this again and again, but it was only when God showed up in the Eucharist and I said, oh, God is here. Even if I don't believe in God, the only two things that I believe in God at this point are that Jesus is present in that little wafer and that God loves everyone. And I know nothing else about (laughs) the reality of God. And those are the only things that I clung to. And I'm certainly an asshole all the time. So I feel for Abram here in this, in that new perspective you've given me here, Al, on this story. What I find interesting, Micah, when I hear you talk, is the vestiges of fundamentalist evangelicalism that's still there. Because, because it's, it's God's fault that things didn't work out. God screwed you over. And I think we often put the blame on God a little bit too much. You know, God didn't screw Abraham over. Abraham screwed himself over. I mean, just look at, you know, I'm not going to get into the next chapter, but God says, hey, I'm going to give you an heir. And Abram and Sarah are like, hey, I'll go screw the maid. You know, uh, is that God's fault? No, that's Abram's fault. Because Abraham still doesn't fully understand or trust God. It's so much easier to blame God than to realize, you know, it's my own screw up. Or it's the fact that we just live in a screwed up world that is all about struggling for power and struggling for for being on top, and struggling for control. And, And that's, whether we put this on Abraham or Sarah, 
that's what the whole situation is going to be like in the next chapter is they're struggling for control. Abraham was struggling for control when he's going through these foreign lands and he's scared they're going to take his wife away from him. They're scared that they're going to do all these other bad things to him. And so he has to take control in a screwed up world the best way he knows how. And while it's in light of today's world, we know that's entirely wrong. He's doing all that he knows how to do. And God loves a trier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My seminary called everyone back because they were afraid of, you know, not having the institutional authority to keep charging us the same kind of rates when we weren't using their campus, right? Like they were trying to, you know, have control, be able to still pay their their staff. Like I think that there is an immense amount of understanding that we can have for these circumstances and still say people made the wrong decision, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate that pushback as well. But I think that to come back to what Elle was saying earlier I think it's a perfectly natural thing for people, human beings who are full of anxiety because our brains that were used to looking for saber toothed tigers have now been rewired with all that same level of anxiety to now go and see saber toothed tigers in each other. It's entirely reasonable for Abram to go, okay, God, I, I get what you're saying, but I'm an old man and it's been a long time and I don't have any kids. And, you know, asking for proof I think that we ask for proof in our relationships all the time, right? When you reach out your hand to hold your hand with your beloved, like you are reaching out to make a connection. And I think that's something that we happen all the time, right? My kid is not a distraction. My kid is a connection-driven individual, right? (laughs) That's the way that we reframe these things. That Like they need points of contact to be able to do that. And I think that we can say... Like Elle's earlier point that God is lonely. Like I'm a Trinitarian. I believe that there God is in three persons, that God exists in perfect community with the three members of the Trinity, and also that God is a connection-driven being. This is what's important for us to view these things through a Christian lens. This is the power of what we as Christians call the incarnation. Because the ultimately God says the only way to connect with humanity is to become this self-sacrifice for humanity. But I also have to connect with humanity by being human. The ultimate way for this divine being to really and truly connect with us is to walk in our shoes. Because now this is where the unorthodox part comes in, is for God to get down in the mud and the dirt with humanity and experience what it means to be human, because that is not something that God had experienced before. God had not experienced this reality of actually walking and being in this world. I mean, Jesus was hungry. He hungered. He thirsted. And and that is powerful for a God to become human and walk with us in the midst of all this mess, and to see it up front. You can watch a documentary or a TV show, and you're going, wow, that is a really cool experience. But until you enter into that experience yourself, you truly cannot fully connect with it. And that's what God does for us. And that's why we need to be building communities where we are listening to each other's stories, where we're understanding each other. The pushback that I get from a friend of mine so often when I'm talking about leftist uh, ideology is that 
leftists tend to be the kind of people who have been able to read a lot of books on these things or listen to a lot of great podcasts. You know, we have enough free time that we're there, right? And and there are some of us who aren't, but a lot of us, reading theory is a privilege, right? Like all of these things requires a lot of free time and it requires a lot of dedication, all those sorts of things. That's why I believe in podcasts, trying to make these ideas a little bit easier for everyone to break down and understand. But so often the failed revolutions of our past are when intellectual middle-class leftists tried to say that the peasants are this way, and so we either make them into the the stupid peasants that we have to direct the right way, or the, the godly peasants that we have to look up to. Neither one of those is actually building solidarity and community with people who are different from us, right? Neither one of those is actually successful in bringing these sorts of things about. And we can acknowledge the fact that we have different levels of privilege, but in this story, God and Abram become friends not because they are equals, but because they need something from each other. That Abram is desperate for life to continue to be able to pass something on, and God is desperate for a relationship that continues past any one individual. The lovely point that was made earlier about Abel coming and giving the right sacrifice because his heart was in the right place, I want to push back on the idea that Abram is God's first friend and say Abel might have been God's first friend. And then when Abel gets killed, that God is having this difficulty reconnecting because God had wanted for Abel to be the means through which this relationship was carried on to all people in the world, but that Abram is this person that he latches on to because they're both longing for the same thing. Not because Abram is special, not because Abram is righteous, not because Abram is a great guy, but because they both need the same thing. And we as leftists, we need the same thing as all of the other people who are suffering under capitalism. We need a better system. But if we come in and say, I have the solution and you have to listen to me, you know, without building the commonality, the solidarity, the relationships with each other, we're not going to actually accomplish our long-term goals. And that's why leftists need to learn how to make friends. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, I'll get leftists for you. And again, this is from the Girardian lectionary. What the writer says is that human beings and religions rarely practice blood sacrifice anymore. But we have turned that impulse into other things. We call it war. We sacrifice others with our weapons of terrifying destruction. And the gods of war continue to be the same old gods of ancient sacrifice, namely gods who command a sacred, sanctioned violence in order to stop our enemies. You know, when uh, you read these stories, you see what Christians have done over the centuries. We haven't done much better even though we have what we believe is supposed to be the final sacrifice in Jesus, God's own self-sacrifice, we still worship war. We sacrifice people on the altar of work, on the Protestant work ethic. My generation and my parents who were silent generation, they were sacrificed on the altar of that Protestant work ethic on the altar of capitalism. We sacrifice people on these altars. We have them beat themselves down. And I want to give you a real life experience, right? My oldest child's my daughter, and she's in her 20s, and uh, she's working at a school. She's uh, working on her master's degree, and she got sick about a week ago, right? So she didn't go into work. I said, no, stay home. 
she's an adult. She lives at home. Uh, she's able to save up money and do that. So as long as she can live at home and save up money, God bless her. But w- when she went back to work, the older people there, people who are probably close to my age, one of them was like, hey, why'd you take off? And she said, well, I, I've been having this sickness I'm dealing with, and I'm still dealing with it today. And so she comes home and she complains to me about it. And I said, I don't want you to kill yourself at your job like I had to do. You will not sacrifice yourself for work. And so the next day she says, okay, I'm taking off. I'm going to the doctor. I said, good, go to the doctor. When she gets back to work after going to the doctor, her coworker who had told her to go to the doctor said, oh, I didn't mean for you to take the day off. I just wanted you to go after work because work is what's most important. Now, to that person, it wasn't just work. It was telling my daughter, I want you to sacrifice yourself and I want you to sacrifice your health on the altar of my own convenience. Because when you're not here, it makes the job harder for me because I have to work harder. And this, these are the gods of violence that humanity still sacrifices people on. It's the God of our convenience, the God of uh, trying to get ahead of somebody else in line. Just go to a school and watch the kids fight to see who gets in line first. We sacrifice ourselves and we sacrifice people on the gods of our own desires, our own wants, and our own needs. And this is not what we're called to do. That has nothing to do with kindness. It has nothing to do with mercy. It has nothing to do with putting others ahead of ourselves. And this is what God is trying to show us through this entire revelation we call scripture is to say, stop worshiping these other gods of violence and convenience and self-want and self-desire. So I was a teacher, and lines are things that are ultimately about control, right? They're ultimately about making sure that things are in the right order so that there is not a friction that exists there, right? If we allow children to run free on the playground because there's enough space, they don't run into each other very often, right? You might have one or two times a play during a play session where kids run into each other, you deal with the situation, right? If we had hallways that were adequately large enough for children to get down there, then children wouldn't be going around and causing chaos when we do these things, right? But we have these restrictions that are set up in place to protect the systems that are in place rather than actually help the human beings to the greatest extent. And that is related to why that other teacher was angry that your daughter was out, right? Because rather than having an adequate substitutionary system where you can get a substitute who comes in and performs a lesson for a day because you have substitutes on staff who are aware of how classroom management happens in that classroom and you're aware or, you know, crazy idea, you have two teachers in the classroom and your substitute is just coming in as a support person. You know, like, If we had systems that were set up so that people were not individually fighting against each other, but were actually cooperatively working together, then we wouldn't have those sort of sacrifice each other on the altar of my convenience. Instead, we would have cooperation. Why are those systems in place that do not allow for it? Well, I'll leave that up to you, dear listener. Maybe if people cooperated, then we wouldn't have a system where we have to kill each other to be able to make a wage. (laughs) Well, the system is there 
to support those with power and money so that we don't put the money into the school systems so that the wealthy politicians and the wealthy companies can control it all and they never have to worry about a damn thing for them and their kids because they can send their kids to a really good private school. So the more money they keep from the public school system and the more money they keep from others allows them to worship their own God known as mammon. That's who they want to worship. They, they're worshiping at the altar of their own convenience at the expense of these poor kids because my wife teaches, you know, in an impoverished school district. And many of the students are immigrants. Uh, they're not native to the U.S. Uh, I mean, I'm in Tennessee, but I'm I'm right. Out, I'm I'm in Nashville, on the edge of Nashville, and we have a huge immigrant population. We have a large Ethiopian population, and so these politicians and these people in power want to keep them down and keep them back because it will challenge. It goes back to rivalry. It challenges their status quo. So I think that's why those systems are there. And now you've made me really get leftist. <laughs> hey, dear listener, this is Future Future Micah here to say that once again, this conversation was so rich and wonderful, we didn't want to cut any material, so we cut it up instead into two different episodes. The next one will be out next week at our regularly scheduled time. Thank you for listening. Now, pass, pass, Micah. Take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past past Micah. Now, friends, let us go and build a world where we do not sacrifice each other to the gods of convenience, of self-satisfaction, and ultimately of capitalism, but instead build a world where all belong simply because they are the friends of God. Shalom. Shalom.